This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Whether we are the boss or an employee, on a small farm or in a large company, poor leadership may be sinking our business. But how do we identify what makes the biggest impact and what we can do to improve? Dave Mitchell shares some key tips from his decades of experience helping individuals and companies improve how they deal with others. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. When it comes to using nitrogen on my corn, the more predictable, the better. That's why I've used Pivot Bio Proven 40 on my corn for the past two seasons and will again this spring. With Pivot Bio, I know my crops are getting the nitrogen they need, no matter the weather. And now that same predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen plant. To learn more, just contact your local sales rep or go to pivotbio.com. At the recent top producer conference, Dave Mitchell, president of the Leadership Difference from Walla Walla, Washington, was one of the headline speakers. He shared real-life examples of how individuals and businesses do well and not so well in managing employees, working with customers, suppliers, and the public. And he talked about what we can do to simply be better leaders. I think you'll find, as I did, several key points you can put to use, no matter the role you may have. Dave, give folks a little bit of your background because you've had different stops before you made it to Walla Walla. Yeah, I uh, so I wanted to be a professional baseball player. Unfortunately, after uh, my sophomore year of college, they discovered a large lack of talent. Uh, so that sent me, uh, I was, I was going to be a broadcaster because I thought, well, that's where all uh, sports stars go after they can't play the sport. <laughs> Turns out I didn't really like broadcasting. So uh, kind of ended up uh, in this uh, professional development role, uh, training and education with corporations. Worked in Chicago uh, for Marshall Fields, um, the, the uh, now defunct uh, high-end retailer uh, that was gobbled up by, I think now, Bloomingdale's. And then eventually moved to Orlando and uh, worked for the Buena Vista Hospitality Group as uh, Vice President of Human Resources and Quality. And then in 1995 started uh, the Leadership Difference. Um, Moved from Orlando to the mountains of Colorado for 14 years. And then the last eight years I've lived in the wine country of Walla Walla. What took you to Walla Walla? That's an interesting place to go. I have been there. It's a beautiful place. But you wouldn't think with the other stops that Walla Walla would be the destination. Well, Andrew, over time, I developed a great affinity for for wine and uh, eventually turned that into kind of a side hustle. I I got my advanced wine sommelier designation, and um, we won a a little piece of uh, uh, a winery and uh, wanted to live in wine country, and California was a bit cost prohibitive, and uh, we also had horses, so we needed land, and so uh, in surveying all the uh, more popular wine regions in the United States, Walla Walla had uh, all the things we were looking for. It's beautiful. Uh, it was the cost of entry was much less. We could uh, have land and, uh, um, you know, a home and, and everything that we wanted for a fraction of the price it would have cost in California. So off to Walla Walla we went. It's, it's a magical place. 
We're going to get into some of your leadership uh, work, but I'm interested, before we get to that, what is it you're learning along the way that you say, I have some knowledge I can share with others? Was it things that you were seeing that I say, hey, they aren't doing this well, or we could do this better? What is it in your mind that says, hey, I should go out here and begin speaking and consulting with others about this? I think so much of it was um, the frustrations that people would have interpersonally with other people um, because they always expected people to behave consistent with how they imagined they would behave in that same situation. And um, that's just not how it works. So a lot of my early focus, I, I had a program, have a program called The Power of Understanding People, and it was designed to help people understand that they have a unique way of perceiving the world, but other people do as well, and it can be very different, radically different, in fact, than their own. And uh, particularly in leadership, your role is to be able to effectively lead a wide variety of people, not just people that think like you, but people that think very different than you. In fact, you benefit as a leader by understanding the point of view of people that think differently than you. Uh, and and that, that program, The Power of Understanding People, eventually was named Best Program of the Year by Meeting Professionals International at the World Education Congress. I was named Best Speaker. The book got uh, a publishing deal with Wiley. The book became an Amazon editor's uh, pick. So obviously that subject really resonated with people, not just in leadership, but also um, in marriages, quite frankly, and, and other aspects of people's life. And it led me to start to recognize that not only were people very frustrated sometimes with the behaviors of others, but they also didn't really always clearly understand their own behavior. So, so I started to focus not just on the power of understanding other people, but also yourself. Um, and then in business, um, you know, you take these, these challenges of being self-aware and recognizing what my own strengths and, and challenges are, recognizing those things in other people. How do we take this collective and, you know, achieve these shared goals with this diverse community of folks. So I think you can think of my most recent three books as, you know, like The Power of Understanding Yourself, The Power of Understanding Others, and The Power of Understanding Us Collectively as an Organization. There is a lot there. So where do I start with that? If I'm saying, okay, whether I am, in a sense, the boss or I'm an employee or maybe I have both roles in what I'm doing in agriculture or wherever – Where's the place that I begin with all that task? Well, I think the power of understanding people, the point of that seminar and that book is for groups of people to, uh, there's an assessment in the book, there's uh, uh, descriptions of the different perspectives, uh, there's applications related to leadership, related to selling, related to customer service, conflict resolution. I think if you can, um, if it were me, I would start with, getting my group together, collectively going through that process so that we kind of understand the diversity that we have as a team, learn to respect that, recognize where there's some natural conflict that's bound to happen and why that's healthy, and then how do we resolve that in a way that doesn't damage our relationship, and how do we harness all this value that we have, even though it's sometimes irritating to us because we're different than each other. One of the things that you talked about, you had five different metrics, and and you, you mentioned it last, but said it perhaps it may be where we should start. And that was about employee experiences. Talk about the ongoing process of that. Do we get it wrong because we don't know how to handle employees and, and take care of things perhaps before things happen? I, you know, Andrew, I, I think fundamentally 
and sadly, we often still operate with the mentality that since I pay you, I don't owe you anything else. <laughs> um, you know, just as I guess with customers, we think since they pay us, we have to take really good care of them. But that's a very oversimplistic view of the relationship of the employee to the organization and the impact the employee has on the customer. So I, I think we have to not think of their compensation as the only obligation I have to an employee. Um, we have an obligation to create an experience. This is where they're going to spend the majority of their life. You know, you take sleep out of the equation. Work is where we spend the majority of our life. And if we think that just by paying them and maybe providing them a benefits package is enough and everything else they owe us, I think we're, we're being um, silly. And particularly in this labor environment where employees have lots of options now and, and, and the employee um, resource is much more precious because if we lose it, there's not a lot of um, backfill available to us. Um, so, so I think we as employers are still very often operating in this kind of archaic, uh, since I pay you, the rest is, you know, you just have to deal with it. And we have to think broader about what is it like to work here? Uh, how do I make it an experience that would attract people rather than um, repel them? If I am a farmer, let's say, that just employs a person or two, or somebody listening to this and employs a lot of people, what would be some steps that I should take then to better make that happen? I, and I made reference to this in today's uh, presentation, but uh, I'm stunned at how little uh, leadership interacts with the uh, the team members, the individual contributors. They, there's a lot of this no news is good news mentality. You know, if I don't hear anything squeaking, I'm not going to apply any oil. Um, but the reality is leaders need to be more assertive in reaching out to the employees, making sure that any grievances, any frustrations uh, are resolved before they become more problematic, before they fester, before they cause permanent damage. Um, you know, I'm fond of saying that leaders have a great deal of power but very little impact. Um, they have the ability to make change, but unless they know what change needs to be made, that ability is relatively useless. So you have to talk to the people that day-to-day -day are driving the vehicles, you know, that are working with the equipment, that are talking to the customers, that are the people that have the impact, right? The, the team members have impact, just no power. The leaders have no impact but lots of power. You've got to reconcile that imbalance, and you, you reconcile that by talking to each other. Um, and, you know, the leader often does the talking instead of the listening. I'm talking about the leader asking questions, not giving information. That has to happen more. I'm interested with your background, Marshall Fields and Disney and these stops along the way. Was this something that you felt like that you were doing well at those times? Or you look back and say, wow, we were really missing the boat on a lot of this as we were doing this. Well, I made reference to this concept of people preventative maintenance, which is having, um, having a more structured mechanism to ensure that you're having these conversations with people. Because I think just leaving it to, you know, just telling leaders, hey, you need to have these conversations, they just don't have them. So uh, I did install a system um, of checks and balances where leaders would have to um, track the conversations they were having with people. Even though they executed them casually, they would administer it uh, more formally. Um, 
so I did uh, at some point recognize that this needed to be done, and I was probably going to have to create a system in order to make sure it happened. So to your point, yeah, I think I, I think it'd be great if this just happened naturally, but I don't think it does. I think that uh, you know some leaders lead that way, but most leaders, you know, they don't go hunting problems, uh, and and you need to hunt problems. It's always problem season. Right. right. <laughs> On the other side, you, you spoke about the customer experience, and I thought it was very interesting going way back to your teenage years, helping your father, kind of in an HVAC type of business. What did you learn from those experiences that then translate in today about how we work with customers either poorly or uh, better uh, than others? Yeah, this gets kind of emotional for me because uh, my dad was so important to me. And uh, uh, one of the things that really stuck with me because uh, I, I uh, as I mentioned, I started doing those books when I was 16, and one of the one of the responsibilities of that was to go through any unpaid balances and send statements to the customers, which is, you know, by today's standards, it was a pretty radical concept that my dad would have all these unpaid balances for work that he's done or appliances that he'd sold. But you know, in, in a small agricultural community, people didn't always have the money to pay. Right now, but you know, you know, come harvest time, I'll have more money, and so if I could get the refrigerator now because we need it, and I'll pay a little bit now and pay anyway. It, I'd send these statement outs every month, and after a while, I I'd see the same names, the same balance, you know, it's for years, and um, I would say to my father, uh, well, "What's the point? Um, you know, Doyle has owed the same fifty bucks." for three years now dad why do we keep sending him uh the statement and dad said well you know doyle <laughs> and dad's boy he'd say doyle doesn't have a pot to pee in uh he's got no money i'm like okay well then why don't we just write it off he goes no no i want him to know how much he owes me <laughs> and that always stuck with me with my dad my dad was a he was a good business person but he had a big heart and uh he would get up in the middle of the night and go work on a furnace because he'd say, what am I going to do, let him freeze? Um, but I, I think um, that was a lesson I learned pretty early in my life is to, uh, is to always be compassionate but uh, not necessarily be taken advantage of. Uh. <laughs> how, how does that work then into in the corporate culture today? Because it has to be a lot different than what you grew up in. <laughs> it's probably why I started my own business, Andrew. <laughs> I didn't see it as much in the corporate world. Uh, no, I think there are lots of, of really, really uh, impressive organizations. I, I do some work in the pharmaceutical industry, and I know pharmaceutical uh, companies get, get uh, a load of criticism, and much of it rightfully deserved. Uh, but I know many of these companies that are very patient-centric, that they, they are very, very uh, dedicated to making sure that the work they, does, that they do positively affects um, the person who's suffering uh, from uh, whatever disease that they're working to cure or to mitigate in some way. So, um, you know, I, I believe in compassionate capitalism. I believe that you can make money and still be good, um, be a good um, contributor to society um so i think that's uh, i think that's something we should all try to be mindful of you know I, i'm not asking you to give away your money i'm just asking you to be thoughtful in the way you make your money you speak and work with a lot of different groups but you certainly have spent time with farm journal and those in agriculture and farmers so i'm interested because many farmers may say well i don't know if this applies to me I, i'm kind of doing my own thing or maybe i have one or two employees and so forth 
but I'm sure you're going to say, oh, yes, it does. Give me some examples of perhaps what we in agriculture miss, and we need to be applying these leadership principles to what we do on the farm or in agribusiness. Well, I certainly don't profess to be uh, astute on all issues related to agriculture. Um, I do think, though, like any organization, as you grow, uh, it becomes um, the, the distance between the owner-operator, the person who started the farm, uh, the person who's got the, the financial risk and burden, um, the distance from them to the people that may actually be doing the bulk of the work, the, the, the mechanic work, the, the working in the fields, the, the labor that's very uh, manual, repetitive, mundane. Uh, and I think um, no matter how large you get, it remains important that you stay connected to that level because that's where the, the magic happens, if you will. And uh, it's hard work. I, I remember growing up in an agricultural community um, the demands that uh, these farmers, and these were generally small farmers back when such a thing existed, doing all this work, all this physical labor, and also having the mental anguish of knowing that there are these factors that are largely beyond your control that can change everything for you. So this is, this is a very difficult existence. Uh, and I can only imagine as you grow and as you have more success, um, wanting to distance yourself from that would be a very normal thing. But I think that's a dangerous thing. Uh, I think you do have to uh, always kind of feel like an owner-operator and at least take the time to engage the people in doing the work. The other thing that I worry about in agriculture is sustainability, not, not, the, not the common way of that, but the business sustainability. Farming, like, like almost anything, but I think particularly farming, is passion-based. Anything that requires so much out of you, and then also you could be destroyed by things completely beyond your control, uh, you have to have an abundance of passion to want to do that. And as you turn this operation over to the next generation, do they share that same passion? Is this, is this, a, is this a process that was destined to happen, or was it something that was passion-based? I think very often the second generation is passion-based. The third generation is where often you start to see too much distance from the original sacrifices. And if, you're, if your interest in the business is only passing and your passion doesn't exist, this is not going to be a sustainable model for you. So I think those are two areas, you know, just the succession planning and looking forward and where do I find my leaders and not assuming that it's your family that has divine right to that. Um, and secondly, maintaining your connection with, with, the, um, with where the rubber hits the road, no matter how big you get. I'm interested with speaking about passion and looking down the generations. Is that something then that owner-operators should help develop in future generations, or is it something that they, the other generations simply have to, to find their way, or perhaps it's both? Because I think every small business owner would love to pass this on to future generations and them to find joy in it. So how does that happen? Again, I wouldn't profess to, to be an expert in that field. I, I, am, I chaired the business advisory committee for the Walla Walla Community College. And um, it's interesting to me that our viticultural and enology program, which is a very specific type of agriculture, uh, it, is, it draws people from all over the world who just have a passion for wanting to grow grapes or make wine out of grapes. Um, and I often wonder, 
does that exist for people who are growing soybeans or wheat or you know it's interesting that that these are very passion-based people that want to they want to be out in the vineyard and they want to prune and they want to make sure it's planted on the right hillside with the right aspect to the sun and all this stuff and and i often think when i see because uh, we live in the middle of all these wheat fields and i see these huge you know combines going through and and you know cutting down this uh, the wheat is you know is that someone that feels the same about that wheat field as those vineyard managers feel about the the grape vineyards because if so uh that's fantastic and if not, then I would think that's that's got to be tough because of the hard work involved. Uh, so I, I, you know, I hope that there's someone out there inspiring farmers, uh, future farmers, about how important that is. In the couple of minutes we have remaining, you speak on so many different aspects of leadership and, and culture and, and vision and so forth. What would be a couple of other takeaways that you would want folks to think about? Again, whether they're, they're the owner or perhaps they're the employee that would be keys to think about in my daily life and work. Well, so the, I'm going to go big, broad uh, sides of the spectrum here, one very conceptual and one very practical. Okay. Uh, on a practical level, um, I, I, one of the biggest surprises for me in my 28 years that I've been doing this work uh, with, with uh, companies all around the world is how valuable good job descriptions are. Uh, and it's not sexy, and it's not, I mean, no one goes to a TED Talk about job descriptions, right? But the bottom line is, um, if I'm starting a job, an entry-level job, and someone can tell me and put a paper in front of me that itemizes, here are all the things that you're going to be asked to do. Here's how well I hope that, that I, here's how well I expect you to do them. Um, that adds a lot of clarity to exactly what my expectation is. Now, you can always put other duties as assigned. I know people get worried about, well, you know, sometimes things get different. You know, you, can, you have some wiggle room clauses, but, but the more you can articulate for people, this is the contribution you make to our successful operation, and this is how well you have to do it, you now have a device for hiring, a device for training, and a device for providing uh, performance feedback, all in one tool that you've just developed. So as uh, irritating as it may be to hear, you need job descriptions for every job that you have on this farm. On the other side of the spectrum, you want to hire people who have what I call an internal locus of control, people who will be accountable for their actions, will take responsibility for any mistakes that they make, and learn from them. Those people are infinitely more coachable. Um, they respond well to uh, feedback. Uh, they don't blame others. Uh, they're better team members. They have less stress. They perform at higher levels. The key is finding these people, right? And uh, as I mentioned in the, the presentation today, uh, one of the ways you can do that is simply ask them in a job interview, tell me about a time you disappointed your boss, and then wait. Uh, you have to wait because they're going to try to wiggle out of that. But eventually they'll cop to something. And when they do cop to something, you want to hear how they summarize that. Did, did they learn from that? Did they get better as a result of that? Did they accept the mistake and change their behavior? Or did they blame their boss or coworkers or the customer? Because that's what they're going to do when they make a mistake with you. Um, and those people don't respond well to coaching. Um, and you're going to continually have these problems with them because they never see it as their own fault. It's always something that exists outside them. So those are the two broad ends of the spectrum 
look for internal locus of control, and write job descriptions. Dave, you have several books out there that if people are wanting to learn more, they can read a little bit more. Absolutely. Uh, You can find them at any uh, of your favorite book retailers, certainly Amazon. Uh, The Power of Understanding People, The Power of Understanding Yourself, Peak Performance Culture, The Five Metrics of Organizational Excellence. Uh, Or if you want to learn more about Dale Mitchell, (laughs) my dad, and and, and the ways he inspired me, my very first book was uh, Live and Learn or Die Stupid, uh, which is... uh, it was a call and uh, reaction that my father used to have. He would say when I'd make a mistake, he goes, oh, well, live and learn. And I, being a smart-ass teenager, would say, or I could die stupid, Dad. You don't know. <laughs> I appreciate the time. Oh, my pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Just type in Farming the Countryside. And you can hear these shows in a variety of ways by going to farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you miss one of our shows, just use those platforms to go back and catch some other topics of interest as well. We try to have a variety of guests with topics that are somewhat timeless, but get information to look back upon when you have a moment. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.